Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Colin Andrews, Chair of the Tieni Fund, who are training low-tech regenerative methods to farmers in Malawi, Southeast Africa. This really is transformational work that's creating fast and dramatic increases in crop yields. Tripling and even quadrupling the output of a field is not uncommon. And that's alongside reducing the required labour and input costs in the long run. It's the perfect example of how lives can be completely turned around for the better through low-cost, accessible solutions when we focus on understanding and working with nature. Smallholder farmers are being moved from food poverty to having a surplus of crops that can be sold to further improve their lives. Colin offers some wonderful analogies to help visualise the necessity to farm in harmony with soil and its natural systems and relationships with plants and the microscopic life that it houses. We consider the global lessons that can be learned from brittle climates that have had to change course in order to address food poverty, along with why nutritional density should be one of our main focuses when it comes to solutions for the future of our food security worldwide. There's also some great insights here into the history of land management in Malawi and how and why the soil became diminished to little more than dirt, with an impenetrable hardpan that sees any remaining nutrients washed away with a heavy rain. The transformation from this to abundant production is thanks to the method known at TNE as deep bed farming. I'll embed an animation on the website that TNE have produced to explain their approach, so check in the description for that link. And of course, you can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing over on the website, wearecarbon.earth. Or find us on Instagram, at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Hello, Colin. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you being here. And before we get really stuck into everything, I wonder if you could offer a brief introduction both to yourself and also to some of your work with TNE. Yes, well, I'm Colin Andrews and I'm a chartered surveyor, so I trained in land management. And I came across TNE when, by chance, I met a chap in Malawi. I was there and uh, he said, uh, yes, I've got this great method of farming that we've been testing with the uh, local community. And I went down to meet him and uh, went down with him to the farm and he uh, showed me it and I, it blew my mind. I said, this is absolute common sense why isn't this spread all over Malawi and he said how would you do that and I said I'll try and show you and hence I got hooked into being a trustee uh, so that's that's the story of what, why I'm sitting in front of you now fantastic yeah very uh, um, you, you saw something that worked and you wanted to take action on that yeah I think it fitted in with my, you know my surveying background um, the the structure of it is what took me of course what I've learned since I've learned there are three parts to TN and there's the structure and there's a the biology and then there's a the sociology but it was the structure that is the topography of the of the method that blew my mind because I said this is absolutely how it should be with regards to the actual work that TNE do and the processes that they use, I'm doing another interview with Isaac from TNE uh, a little bit in the future, but I'll make sure that they interlink so that people can uh, refer back and, and, and see how that all um, relates and more details of the work itself. But I wondered if we could have a discussion because so many of the issues that we have in the world today are global. Um, rather than localised. I thought we could have a discussion where we take the work of TNE and what TNE teaches and put that into a perspective of how the world can learn from that. And with regards to climate change and that alongside growing populations, which is seems to be the direction of the future is more people but also more uncertainty when it comes to the weather and it comes to producing food in particular. So with all of this, how does the work of Tieni and in particular the health of the soil, why is soil such a big topic that we should be focusing on? Well, I'll answer that in two ways first. The first thing 
is to just imagine that I hear again and again, how are we going to feed the people? And it's the wrong question. And the reason for that is that big agriculture that we have in Europe and North America and South America, this big agriculture could probably improve its yields by 20 or 30% using a lot of uh, quite manufactured techniques. But smallholders that produce 75% of the world's food could easily double their yields, maybe treble, and in Malawi, quadruple their yields. So there's not a food shortage, potentially. The problem is we have damaged our soil. We have not treated it with reverence. And the soil has spent hundreds of thousands of, hundreds of millions of years having a relationship with plants. Plants know how to grow it, and the soil knows how to react to it. And of course, the soil is a living thing. So to actually ignore soil or treat it like dirt is the worst thing and the most arrogant thing that humans can do. And unfortunately, arrogance comes from ignorance. Yeah. Yeah, because when we look at the modern way that we farm, it is actually just horrific towards the soil. We're, we're literally killing the soil um, in every process, in every yield that we take out. We are. And actually, when you think about it, and this is something that's come to me only in the last two or three years, humans have always, since they started farming land, have always damaged the soil. But until the Industrial Revolution came along, we couldn't do it in an industrial scale. We didn't have the machines. It was just people. So the soil had, basically, nature was stronger than we were. And then, then obviously, we got this machinery and bigger and bigger machinery and less and less people needing to do it. And then we thought, oh, we can invent chemicals that can do what that bit that we want the soil to do. And so what we've done in that arrogance is we've destroyed or we are in the process of destroying that top 30 centimetres on which the whole world depends for its living. Yeah. So it really is crucial to say that <laughs> we can just keep I'm... on ignoring this problem. Yeah. And that, in many ways, it, it's, it's kind of like if we put that into an optimism, there is huge scope for improvement. Enormous. Because we've literally had such arrogance and ignorance on this topic. Yeah, And it's so quick to put it right because nature is very forgiving, thank goodness. We can put it right. It is, and it won't take long. If, if, if the governments and people want to do it, it will happen. It's already a, a groundswell of movement, but it needs to spread to government. And government will tell, probably follow it from the voting point of view, but the governments must get involved. We farmers are doing it and organisations, but, you know, it's a really important role that government has in getting this to the next step, which is looking after the soil properly. Yes, it seems to be something that, like you say, it's it's coming from the farmers first. It's coming from the, um, and a lot of um, the science just hasn't found its way into the government and into the the, the larger bodies that actually can have an impact. Um, and I think that's what is so interesting to me about the work of TNE um, projects like this. It's like you've just said, we can change it quickly. And that seems to be the missing link sometimes, is that we have information that's very much outside of us and very much detached from what the public can really engage with. Whereas this is saying, look, actually, the problem was really bad here, but look how quickly we've changed it. And that then, um, that in itself should override um, any hesitation and reservations that people have in um, taking this on board. So in Malawi, the the work of TNE started because things were so bad, because the soil was very much degraded. So what was the condition of it? What were the signs of degraded soil? Yes, the signs first, and then maybe you'll ask me for the reasons for those signs. Okay, the signs of the degraded soil were um, bare slopes with bare, hard soil exposed to the elements where minimal weeds or any other form of growth. That's one. Two, on the rains, bright red rivers, so thick with mud in them that they almost seem like a treacle. 
that's it. Um, wilting crops that have grown beautifully and then suddenly they go brown and wilt. Uh, and of course, the biggest sign of all is food poverty. So 2002, we had a lot of deaths from malnourishment and people were going around chewing leather, eating banana leaves, just looking for anything to eat because the country ran out of food. As to the reasons why, I'm, I'm sure you'll ask me. But uh, So the signs are very human. And then when you look at the soil, these bare pans, and then you look at the vegetation and you can see it's suffering. Suffering not necessarily from shortage of water, although that's the worst one, but also suffering from a lack of appropriate micronutrients. Yes. So really that idea that nature um, takes over anywhere, like if we left a bare patch in our gardens here in the UK, we would be inundated with weeds. And and what's happening instead is actually nothing's coming in to, to fill that bare soil. And anything that is growing is declining and wilting away. So yes. it's fairly obvious. And of course, there's a misleading thing there, bare soil. Well, I, I consider that soil and dirt are quite different things. Soil is a living organism with 8 billion little living things in every double handful of healthy soil. That's what they reckon, 7 to 8 billion. And yet this hard pan, this hard, almost shining at you, there's no topsoil yeah, there. So it's almost man-made concrete surface. It's exactly. just so dense. And, and therefore, how can a seed, you know you know the parable of the seed, some fell on stony ground. They should have said some fell on hard pan because there's no way that a seed can grow. It just can't. Okay, so then that brings us to, as you um, suggested, what are the causes? Why does yeah. it reach that point? And, and you get a little bit of history here that before... Um, the modern, no, sorry, the, before the traditional methods of farming, as they're referred to in Malawi, um, would take off, they used to practice shifting cultivation. And that is, they would go in, they'd slash, burn, scatter seed, and after two years, it wouldn't grow, so they'd move on to another bit of land. And with a population in 1900 of under a million for the whole of Malawi, they were shifted. There was enough land, and seven years later, or eight years later, or five years later, they'd come back and try it again, and it would have regenerated. So, but this, as the population went up in 1920 to 1.2 million, and now 20 million, suddenly they were practicing shifting agriculture techniques without moving because they couldn't move, because they couldn't find another bit of land. And of course, that can't work because they've already proved it could work, because that's why they used to shift. So that's the first thing. So the nutrients are taken out of the soil. Secondly, with clay soils, which there are a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, when it rains, foot traffic itself will create a hard pan. And then the third thing is, as um, traditional methods of agriculture came in with the hoe, the hoe has a blunt um, blade at the front, and it, you go down into the soil, you fluff up the soil your side of the hoe but for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and you get compaction below and you get this what's called hoe pan so you've got foot pan hoe pan and then one other nasty sort of pan which is if you don't cover your dug soil with mulch or cover crops then when a rain a drop of rain comes from three thousand feet above and hits that surface it hits it like that, like that. And when it dries out, you end up with this crust. So the next time it rains, it doesn't form a crust, it runs straight off. So three layers of pan that uh, need to be uh, treated or not allowed to happen. So this is uh, the reasoning is that there's no, no nutrients left in the soil. It's overworked. Is the damage being caused um, chemically as well? Ah, well, if we get on to very modern methods, which is sort of post-1950, then, and the Green Revolution, the whole answer from the Western world is, ah, you've got to put fertiliser on it. And the fertiliser you need to use is the stuff we used to put in bombs to drop on Germany or Japan or wherever, 
But now we've converted it. It's the perfect chemical. And, and of course, the IRA reversed that and used to get fertilizer to make bombs uh, in, the, in Northern Ireland, as you probably know. They use fertilizer. So fertilizer is old bomb material, but it does do, it does make plants grow. The problem is twofold. One is that the acidity of the soil, if you use these, goes up over a period of years. That is, the pH goes down, which makes it harder to grow quite a lot of plants. They, they, are, they can adapt, but it just doesn't grow as well. But the really nasty thing about um, using these fertilisers is that it breaks the contract between the plant roots and the soil living organisms. So in a healthy soil and in a healthy environment, those plants are up there photosynthesizing, turning carbon dioxide and sunlight using water into sugars. And you would think that they would be selfish enough to hold those sugars in just for their own growth. But in a healthy soil, they exude some of that sugar into the soil because they have a contract with the fungi and the bacteria, which is they will feed them sugars in return for which they get their micronutrients. Now, micronutrients are literally micro. They're not like nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, which are key for growing. They're the little ones that just make the plant more resistant to disease, insect um, predation, and also help them grow. So when you apply an artificial chemical that's been made in a laboratory, which nature hasn't developed over the last 300 million years, you are interfering with that contract between the roots and the soil. And instead of that, you shove your chemical in there and it goes straight up into the plant. And you might say, well, that's good enough. We've done it. The problem is those micronutrients aren't getting into the plant, which is damaging the nutritional value of the plants, of the crops. And this is worldwide. This is not Malawi. This is worldwide. And the WHO has shown you, or sorry, the FAO have shown how the number of trace elements in our vegetables and in our meats has dropped since 1950, in some cases by 40 to 50 percent. I'm sorry, that's a bit more detail. No, that's perfect. It's absolutely um, shocking. 40, 50% nutritional loss. Um, and to, to yeah, not make a connection with the reason. Actually, we are feeding the plants, the fertilizers, and in effect, we're starving them. That's the kind of irony of feeding them this way, is we're so starving I'm, the plants. Exactly. And our job as farmers, I'm not a farmer, but our job as farmers is to feed the soil because the soil knows how to feed the plants and the plants know how to feed the soil. They've got a good contract. They know how it works. And we come in with our slicing, arrogant, but single, single, very narrow gauge thinking. Yes, very oversimplified. With the soils in Malawi, would you, would, is the um, general usage because of growing population and then the pan being um, compacted, has that been the main cause of the issue with the degrading soil? Or was it very obvious that when chemicals were introduced that that just escalated um, much faster? Right. I think the chemicals are the secondary, definitely. Uh, what what actually happened was um, the British government, in their wisdom, said in the 50s, they said to Malawian farmers, you've got to farm this way, and if you don't, you'll be fined or put in prison. The method they taught had a lot of benefits. Unfortunately, many of the things that they taught weren't picked up properly. However, the principle of the, what they now call um, traditional agriculture is you have a ridge, and either side of it you have a furrow. And you grow your plants this year on that ridge. And then at the end of the year, you cut it down in half. You push that half that way, that half that way, which meets the other half of the next ridge. Okay. And you've got a fluffy. The problem is you've got a triangle of soil in section. 
but below that you've got a hard pan. Now that hard pan, which has been caused by hose or foot traffic, they never break. They just move, fluff the soil from side to side, ideally a little bit uphill rather than downhill. And the danger of that is when you get a heavy rain, then the rain comes down, it go, percolates through the fluffy soil, it hits the hard pan, and if it's on a slope, you lose the whole lot. If it's on a slight slope, it'll just run and take the soil with it. So that's half the problem. It's not, it's not the whole problem because uh, there are other things that happen. For instance, leaving the end of their furrows open so that the water runs along the furrow and downhill, or putting your ridges and furrows up and down the hill. Loads of mistakes they made. And this is at a time when Malawi was going for independence. And this uh, rule that the British government had come out with about how to farm, which was well-intentioned, uh, played into um, Hastings Banders' um, political agenda perfectly that they wanted independence and there was unrest in Malawi and uh, uh, they got their independence and unfortunately when they did, they didn't change the method of farming and so that has continued from the 60s right the way through to the present day where you see soil, all that trouble they take to make these beds, 650 tonnes per hectare of soil is moved by using that method every year. And they do all that work, the rains come down and wash it away. Or worse still, because of climate change, the rains are no longer predictable. They come and then they get a dry spell quite often in the middle of the growing season. Now, with a deep bed method, your roots are much deeper, got access to more liquid for water for lots of reasons, but mainly because you've broken the hard pan and you've percolated the water into that. But with the traditional method, you've got this hard pan, you've got a triangle of soil that it grows in, the roots go down, hit the hard pan, go flat, you get a dry spell, the plants wilt. Yeah. So it's everything that's going on under the surface that we can't see that is causing all the problems. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, the FAO and, the, and all the other big organisations a few years back, we're saying erosion is the problem. Erosion, we've got to stop erosion. Yes, but erosion isn't the problem. It's man's approach to how they treat the soil that is the problem, resulting in erosion. So you have to go back one step. Yeah, erosion's a symptom. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And we have, um, you know, in Malawi, things got so bad that uh, it led to food poverty around the world we could sort of look at that and think well we're we're a bit immune to that because our climates are less brittle is that something that you know we're just very much wrong to take that attitude are there other soils um that are very close to this kind of condition and um is there anything that's immune to it uh, of course not if you if you if you want to attack nature eventually you will suffer but we have been so lucky in Britain. We've probably got among the best soils in the world in Britain. So I would say so far, we've just about got away with it. But what we are doing to our soils on many of our farms in Britain is very destructive. And lots of talks I hear, they've been stated and then withdrawn that we've only got 50 crops left in the Western Europe's soils and in American soils. Um, I'm not sure that they actually mean, quite mean that, but they mean that our, well, I know I've talked to farmers and they have to increase their fertilizer year on year for the same yield. They were getting higher yields from it. And, and then a lot of that fertilizer gets washed out and, and damages our rivers, our streams and our biodiversity. So it's it's unsustainable in sort of every way you can think of. We're damaging the soil. We're damaging yeah. the environment. From every angle, it's just terrible. And making less and less profit. And, and, of course, there are two types of farmer. There's the farmer who sort of understands his land and has been pushed by government and by supermarkets and, and wholesalers to do it a certain way. And then and, and, and they're, probably, uh, they're probably going out of business because all the time the value of their crops is going down because um 
uh, because the the buyers can push them around. And then you've got the venture capitalists who have 100,000 acres and they're not farmers. They're sitting in office blocks in London making money for their clients. You can't blame them for that, but don't expect them to look after the land. They probably wouldn't know what a, a, a handful of soil looks like. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's very Sorry. detached. I'm going off. No, it's it's good. It's uh, um, so much uh, knowledge, and I think it's really important that we you know connect all the different voices together because, like you say, somebody who's they're just worried about the money is not thinking about the uh, the land. They're thinking about the short term profit, and that's gonna. Um, we've done too much of that. We've sort of reached a point where we need to go in the other direction now. So in Malawi, Tieni are sort of reversing this effect of degraded soil, basically. Um, and as I've said, I will be speaking to Isaac about that so people can learn um, sort of the hands-on how, how that's happening and what's involved to, to, to take those steps and put those methods into action. But I thought uh, if you could take a sort of a more sort of zoomed out engineering perspective of how does this work? Why 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 do these methods work? What is it that um, is, is taking things backwards towards healthy soil? Well, I think I'd like to start with an analogy. If you have a big block of flats sitting up there, perhaps 20 stories and 20 flats per floor, and people living in them, those people need the spaces to move around and carry on the process of living. And it's quite a big box that 20 stories and 20 flats per floor and if uh, you get all the people out and then you blow that building up and it crumbles firstly it's not as big a block and secondly you've lost all your spaces you couldn't possibly live in a collapsed block of flats could you no absolutely not and that is the analogy to the soil if you damage the structure of the soil chemically and physically, like is being done all over sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, you don't leave space for the very organisms that keep that soil healthy to live. You don't leave space for gases and, and fluid interchanges. You've squashed it flat. So I would start with that analogy because I think it's very real to be thinking of soil as a living organism. It's not. It's a living of millions of organisms. So I, if you start off with that, and what TNE does is not huge, but the effect is more than huge, because all we do is allow the soil to go back to where it was. And we are being asked, even today, I got a... And, um, a WhatsApp from a farmer, from a f farm officer, and they had just got their crops up from land that they had abandoned years ago. And this year, back in October, they applied the deep bed method to it. And now the plants are up this high. They can't believe it because this is stony ground. And they said, no, you can't farm that land. So it's that quick. It's that quick because... And, that is, yeah. So in a season... doing a little thing. It's nature doing the rest. Yeah. So it's restoring the life to the soil. Like yes. you've just given this wonderful analogy that you, you, you're giving them their home back and they take care of the rest. Exactly. Um, yeah. Feeding the plants. Fantastic. So it really is... Um, vast improvements in a short time is that that's yes, not I, exaggerated to say that you can see it well it's 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 more than that firstly we've got lots of comparison pictures of um same farmer planted on the same day traditional and deep bed and the deep bed they're taller they're bright green you know that deep dark green i should say uh, the leaves are and then you look across and they're feebler and yellower not as green and of course the green is photosynthesis and photosynthesis is as i said before where the sugars are made and all the other processes to make uh, i mean good photosynthesis doesn't just make sugars it makes complex carbohydrates that are indigestible to insects so if you've got a plant that's not that healthy it's much more available to insects and disease 
than a healthy plant, just like a human is. Yeah, so that the, in terms of pest um, problems, this is amplified because the microbes are not doing their job. So everything, um, the, the basically the lifeless soil, if we could call it that, or the dirt, it is just taking away every single chain of um, defence from the plant. Exactly. Um, so if you return that life to the soil, that's why it's so quick, because it, it, it has the knowledge and the intelligence to put everything back into its own system. Yes, I mean, we have to do a little bit more than just break the hard pan, as you can imagine. So there are three or four really important things. They're obvious to any gardener. Break the hard pan. Never allow the soil to be exposed to the elements, because it isn't in nature. That drop of rain hits a leaf and drips on, no surface hard pan cause, for example. The cover crops or mulch on the top will stop the drying out quicker. It'll keep it cooler in a, in a warm climate. It'll keep it warmer in a cold climate. Um, you know, all these things. But nature never shows bare soil unless there's a catastrophic landslide or something. You don't get bare soil in nature. But we see bare soil. We see huge areas of of Kentucky and, you know, the Dust Bowl, the famous Dust Bowl in the 30s, they destroyed some of the best, really good, deep soil was blown away because it was exposed to the elements. And yes, we, we, we get very good, quick results. So I'll give you one in Chiteka, sloping land, really suffering from erosion. In our first year there, some of the farmers got eight tons of dried maize to the hectare. One got a shade under 10 tons. And the national average and the average of the three countries surrounding Malawi is between two and three tons. Now, that was in the first okay, so year. We're talking about, we're talking about massive in certain cases. And of course, the percentage increase in abandoned land is infinity because they weren't getting anything from it. So, any, so that's a misleading one. But if you've got the average, which is two, two to three tons of um, of dried maize seed per hectare, then to get eight tons, and that was more than half the farmers got eight tons or more per hectare. Phenomenal, and that is in a very, very short time. The very sort true. of results that you just wouldn't have thought would be possible. Is it repeatable? Yes. Um, what we've found is, is ob obviously, you don't get. Uh, you don't get 16 tons the next year, you're probably at the right use. And then it's very much a function of how much you put back into the land. So um, if you fly over sub-Saharan Africa in August, September, October, and look down at the ground, you'll be looking through a blue haze. That's burnt crop residues, burnt grass. So one of the fundamental principles of deep bed farming is you do not burn any foliage. You use it to mulch and let it get absorbed by the soil or let it stay on top to stop the sun striking or the rain striking or the wind striking. It's obvious, really, because that's what happens in nature. Leaves fall to the bottom, grass fall and lay flat. You just don't have bare earth. And, and so we have to put it back. And then, of course... Uh, to make good compost, which is a big issue in itself, you do need some um, uh, nitrogenous waste, i.e. Uh, excreta from animals or humans. Uh, obviously, there's cultural issues with uh, using human excreta, although we're working on that at the moment with a group of farmers. But we have a pig pass-on programme and a goat pass-on programme for uh, particularly for um, Islam, Islamic families, because of course they don't, they wouldn't have pigs. Um, so, uh, and that pig person, where they get the best farmers get, who've built a pigsty or a goat stall, um, get given a sow, and the first um, female descendants of that sow, um, on a regular basis, get on a frequent basis, get passed on to others in the community. So it's a, a cascading spreading of that, but those animals are not there for meat. They probably get eaten for meat eventually, but they are there to provide the nitrogenous waste to mix with all the other ingredients to make compost. And that compost is the 
It's a fundamental part of the nutrient balance. So by breaking a hard pan, we're letting these roots get down into water and micronutrients because all the time bedrock is, is being broken down by fungi and other, um, other uh, organisms. And those micronutrients are then, as soon as they're broken down from the rock, they're available to the plants. And the fungi transfer them in their, uh, in their web of, um, uh, their cobweb of uh, roots. And then the bacteria do, do their stuff between the two. So that recharging of the soil with compost is fundamental. And farmers are um, limited by the amount that they can find. So if, if they don't put any compost on, they will end up with a hard pack. They'll end up with bare ground again because they will suck all the nutrients out. They have to replenish. So it's that valuable that the pigs themselves are worth keeping, not for the meat, no. um, don't even need to, to get meat. It's, it's actually, it's like a function of uh, building the soil. Exactly. Um, and of course, got a role to play. And in many parts of the world, you don't have to keep a pig or a, or a goat in a, in a pen they can free range over over their field and they're doing exactly the same thing but as nature intended unfortunately we just haven't got the amount of land in malawi to allow that to happen in most places the average small holding is one and a half to two acres uh, with the deep bed method and that wouldn't support most families traditionally farmed or only just they'd have hungry months of january and february but deep bed farming, we find a family of eight can be supported on just a half an acre in deep beds. And that raises a number of other things. The first thing is that they can grow the rest of their land for cash crops, make money to pay for education or a tin roof on their, on their huts. But more importantly, they don't have to farm all their land. They can leave a bit to grow firewood or leave a bit fallow. And that's quite good for biodiversity. So, so there's things appearing from this successful method, which uh, we didn't predict in the early stages. Yes, and that's the thing, isn't it? When, when you leave things to nature, it doesn't take very long for her to sort of surprise us with all yes, sorts of uh, exactly. answers that we didn't even look for. Yeah. And I think this is the thing with... These kind of projects that support biodiversity, they are, as I've said already, they're right in front of our nose because I think people struggle to engage with the discussion of climate change sometimes because it's always about something we can't see. It's up in the atmosphere or it's a potential problem that might happen in the future, whereas these, um, these are offering results that people can witness the transformation. Yeah. And this is because we're not talking about global climate as much as we're focusing on the microclimate. And I suppose there's a mirror there. There must be at some point where we could acknowledge that an unhealthy microclimate is probably having a, a bad impact on the climate as a whole. Whereas if we can actually witness healthy um, rejuvenation of microclimates of the land under our feet and see that things are balancing out we're, we're probably heading in the right direction i think that's right i, I think it, it's um interesting that uh the deep bed method was really developed to deal with what you said microclimates or in fact an uh, unpredictable climate pattern but what we realise, of course, is that what we're doing to that soil, which is locking all this carbon down into it, is we're not only combating the effects of climate change, but we are, in our own small way, reversing that climate change by taking carbon into the soil. And that's something, again, that when we started on this, we, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't a subject of discussion. But we now realise that if farming's done like this everywhere, huge amounts of carbon can be absorbed into the soil and always were in the past until we started messing it up. I don't know whether you know that there's pictures, um, satellite pictures of the world during ploughing season. And it shows the amount of carbon dioxide given off by the very effects of, of ploughing. And what happens is, a bit like my block of flats, you imagine running a plough through the middle of a block of flats. 
not only do you get the tumble, but all the people dying inside it, i.e. all the microbes, they're madly trying to survive. They speed up their metabolism, they die, and this carbon dioxide goes out into the atmosphere. If we stopped plowing just that one thing, we would reduce the amount of carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere hugely. And, of course, there is a growing... A school of thought that uh, that uh, disturbing the soil is nearly always a negative. Yes, because there's so much delicacy to that life. Yeah, it, and and of course we get criticised. They say, "Well, you're disturbing the soil because you're the first thing you do is go in with a pickaxe and break up the hard pan." And sometimes you start talking back, and they walk away. But of course, you've got to get rid of the man-made obstructions before you can start helping nature back. You could leave it, leave it for 20 years, and it'll probably be all right. But most people haven't got 20 years to wait for their next meal. Exactly, yeah. You're speeding up because you understand what the problem is. And, uh, yeah, fast forward in it. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. And um, see, what we're talking about, when when we think of the, the huge problems in the world, there's so much money that is injected um, with regards to technology and um, finding solutions to all these big problems. And yet what you're describing is such low-tech, um, fast results right in front of people's eyes. You couldn't really find a problem that is perhaps more imminent than, than something like food poverty, where people are really they're, they're, they're either starving or they're malnourished and you're reversing that quickly. That, that's huge. And, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of what this work is achieving. And yet it doesn't seem to get the focus. It almost goes under the radar with regards to sort of big discussions on um, solving big problems. Mm-hmm. And do you find that to be the case? And if so, why do you think it is? Okay, so firstly, I'm very glad that you put those two things, you thought hunger and malnourishment, because, of course, there is a problem that uh, a full belly feels like you're satisfied, but uh, I think 52% of children in Malawi are stunted, and they're stunted because of poor nourishment, malnourished they are. Uh, so I, I think the problem is that large organizations particularly and even large corporations and, dare I say it, people like Bill Gates are all really well-meaning. They really want to solve the problems of the world. The problem is they have the arrogance to think that they can come up with something simple that's directly aligned with their experiences so far. And this is where I have to explain what what makes TNE, what I believe makes TNE different to those organizations. So we have three parts to TNE. The first is the physical. We've talked about that. We don't let water run downhill. We catch every drop on a field and, and allow it to percolate, infiltrate. Um, we don't allow any soil to be swept away. We don't allow the sun to get on and all that. We've been through that. That's what I would call the physical. The second is the biological, and we've even alluded to that. Uh, green manure cover crops, I haven't mentioned too much. Interplanting, companion planting, uh, mulching, uh, composting. All those are the biological. And you could put all those in a manual. So this is how to do it. And people could follow that manual. The bit that makes TNE very different is the sociological If you arrive in a poor village with three glistening Hilux vehicles with your emblem on the side, and you're turning up to people who are not just poor, but are food poor, they are not going to be having a conversation with you as equals. They are going to be doffing their hats and saying, well, how can we get these people to help us? They They will allow themselves to be pushed around because they're hoping that these are their saviors. I could be more negative about that, but I don't want to be negative. This is a natural reaction of poor people when they say people who see people who've got it all or appear to have it all. And what happens 
with these large organizations is when they move away, they do their stuff, right, we've got 20,000 people are now food secure because of what we've done. And then they turn their backs because they've got lots of other people to teach. The average retention rate in sub-Saharan Africa is under 3%. Under 3%. Now, that is, that's not me. That is reports again and again, under 3% retention. So that shows it's not sustainable. And the question mark is why. And you hear people say, oh, well, they're just stupid. Well, I'm sorry, farmers are not stupid. They really aren't. They're hardworking and they're, they're farming. Their families, their wives and their children depend on getting it right or their husbands because women do most of the farming in, in Malawi. Um, so the construct we've got is that we can go in um, and like Bill Gates has put loads of his money into, he's thinking that fertilizers are the answer. He's actually put billions, I think, certainly millions, hundreds of millions, into providing fertilizer, believing that he's done the right thing, believing because people are telling him. And the people that are telling him are the people who run the agrochemistry industry. I heard that at COP26, the largest pressure group there wasn't the, um, wasn't the fossil fuel people, it was the agrochemical people. There were 530 um, people there from agrochemical. That's what I was told. I haven't been able to check that. So going back to your question, um, I have noticed that the large organisations tend to come in with a lot of money. They pay farmers to learn this method. They pay them to continue the method with the aim of sustainability being we'll stop paying in three years' time. And what happens in three years' time is the farmers stop doing it. So we've even had the large organisations come into our office shouting at us saying, you're stealing our farmers, which obviously is ridiculous. We don't give any incentives. We, farmers adopt this method because they see it works, nothing more than that. And of course, so we're, we're a little bit unpopular with a couple of um, uh, the larger organisations in Malawi because uh, their farmers are saying, no, I want to do deep beds now. And in one case, we know they're paying them not to do deep beds. So if I say that's the, that's the very negative end, most of it's not as negative as that. But, but it is a war out there. And if you're a large organization, one of the things you want to do is to continue as an organization. Your loyalties are firstly to your organization to make sure you get the funding, that we can still be there next year and the next year after. And then your second priority is the recipients of your work. And I would say Tieni is not that. We put the recipients of our work first and our aim is not to exist in 10 years because we'll have done our job. So that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's when the actual problem is at the heart and solving a problem is at the heart of the organisation rather than competitiveness or um, financial um, sustainability yes. um, and that's the nature I suppose of the work you're doing is um, it is founded as a charity so there, there's very different motivation there. There is but of course a good charity must be run on business like terms and, and that is something that I have brought I'm a businessman and I have brought that to TNE uh, because the people who set it up are wonderful people and with charitable hearts um, but their hearts were a little bit too soft to get to where we've got to now. And you know, I, I'm not criticising a soft heart, but I am criticising using softness in a business where that affects the efficiency of the business and the efficiency meaning that every penny is spent to its optimum use. And that's, that's what I bring to the party, really, is, is to make sure that anything we spend the maximum effect is felt in Malawi. Yeah, so it's really having that biggest possible impact and um, to as many people, as many farmers as possible. Yes, sustainably. Because if a, if a farmer gives up, and, and you know we've done research, some of our farmers give up, and there's a whole range of reasons, and some of them are really complex. I mean, it can be they die, 
or they're too old to farm that amount of land anymore, or they move. There's lots of reasons. And then there's the negative reasons. Well, you helped us set this up, but now you've turned your back on us. So that's something we've addressed because they almost felt that because we trained them in doing their beds, that we were going to continue to come and help them every year. Well, we can't. We're only 13 staff maximum. And um, there's uh, 1.8 million farmers in Malawi. That is, yeah, that puts a bit of perspective on it, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this is really, at the heart of it is educating so that they can, like you say, be sustainable on their own feet and, and keep moving forward. And in the positive examples where it is maintained and continued, do you find that they can manage the land easier and easier each year? Right, and this is really important. It's, I'm glad you asked that question because we then did, we've got an M&E officer who's funded by the four in London. And he did a research on um, profitability of the deep bed method compared to traditional. And after five years, we are 12 and a half times more profitable than the traditional method. And the reason for that is that we don't dig after the first year. No digging. That's the end. So the traditional method, they move 650 tonnes uh, for every hectare every year we move about it's it's about 1200 tons in the first year and then nothing of course see they should be making manure or compost whichever method uh, we probably get our farm suggest to our farmers that the spare time they have um, they can always make a bit more compost yeah so it does um it, it... The percentages are just unheard of, aren't they? In terms of what we expect in any other business model, we don't get 12 times the profit. Exactly. And, uh, um, yeah, it just is, it works. And that, that seems to be uh, the underlining um, sort of outcome of it, is it, it does the exact job that it sets out to do. Yeah, I suppose I didn't really, I didn't quite explain also the third element. So I've gone to the... Uh, physical and the biological, but the third element, which I now believe over the last two or three years, we've had some research done and I've looked at it, I believe is the most important part of TNE is the collaborative approach that I've said, how it doesn't work with larger organisations. Lots of small organisations probably get this right. We talk at the same level with the farmers. We ask their problems. We listen to their suggestions. We adopt their suggestions. The whole point is it's a discussion it's a discussion of equals. And I think that is so powerful, a sociological model. The other thing we do, we don't have a demonstration garden anymore. We used to start with that and found that that created sociological problems. Oh, he's done more work than, the, uh, he's done less work than me. Uh, uh, oh, she had more maize than me. And suddenly you have a, a splintering of a community. So what we do is we call it the DDG. It's the... Um, uh, dispersed demonstration garden in that the training is taking place in every farmer's field. So all the farmers work in every farmer's field while the training is going on. They learn the challenges the other farmers got, they share best practice, and they work together. So if a community is already working together, that's easy. But if it's not because it's too poor, those strains, this pulls them together in a way that... Um, uh, well, this is Isaac's invention. He brought it in and it's had stunning effects. So you'll talk to Isaac about that, I'm sure. Yeah, so this is something that's very motivational, the collaborative um, impact and how powerful that is. Yeah, Yes. wonderful. It's, yeah, fabulous work. So I wondered if, um, just to sort of sum it all together in terms of the bigger picture, um, we have people worried about food security and running out of food in the future. What topics, if you could summarise, what topics should we be focusing on? Should we be um, putting effort or learning more about that would push us in a direction of resilience for creating and farming foods? I think, I think for me, I would like to see uh, much more concentration on the the nutrients and micronutrients in the food we eat. I almost think that all supermarkets, all outlets for food would have to state this and would have to check the chemical 
com- combinations once a quarter, maybe, because just because a courgette or a tomato looks nice doesn't mean that it's got the nutritional value you know. We buy with our eyes because we haven't got anything else to base it on. So we're being sold a pup, not intentionally, but that's what's happening, because when you go to the supermarket, you pick the apple without the blemish in it. In fact, the apple with the blemish in it might have been grown organically. I don't know. But So I would start with the nutrient values in our food, because if it's good nutrients, you won't need as much of it to be nourished. So it's a good starting point, that. Um, and then, of course, that takes it down. Well, how do you get food like that? Well, you give up artificial fertilizers. You give up digging the soil. In other words, you you allow the plants to reconnect with healthy soil. So that would be the topic I would be saying is the way we grow our crops. And then the third level down is to say, if we wanted to be sustainable, we need to be more biodiverse. So that means monocropping of a thousand acres in a single crop and hybridizing it so that it's resistant to uh, herbicides. And then you can spray the whole lot. Your crop doesn't die, but everything else does. That's got to go. That can't work. And I question the size of fields. I think they're too big, a lot of them. Uh, And that would obviously have hit the farm machinery business because I think the machinery has to come down to a bit smaller. So that's care of the land. So we start with care of humans, the type of food that's right up the top of the tree. And right at the bottom is the care of our world, our biodiversity. And in between is how we farm. Is, is, is that the sort of answer you're looking for? Does that answer your question? Or It does, yeah. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah, well, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. And you are um, full of so much knowledge and information on this. I'm sure that people will find it incredibly useful and insightful. Um, hopefully inspiring people to, to get a little bit more engaged with where their food comes from as well, which I think is incredibly important. Really important. Have you come across CSA? community supported agriculture it's spreading all over this country when i was a kid round every town if you looked at a map of a town round the edge of every town in britain there were crisscrosses and that was the ordnance survey sign for market gardens they've all gone now round ringwood which had a population of about eight thousand then there were seven i lived near ringwood there are none now CSAs are coming back to replace it. The idea is to grow fruit and vegetables in the town where they're eaten organically. So there are about 200 around the country, and we've just opened one in Ringwood. And I sent pictures of that farm out to the farmers in Malawi, and they're jumping up and dancing because what we're doing as a CSA in Ringwood is exactly the same as they're doing in Malawi. It's a me- and that's not me. That's not my method. That is a method that's been developed by people who are really experienced. You've probably heard of Charles Dowding. Yes. He's the um, fruit vegetable guru for Britain. I think he's written loads of books, um, and it's it's pretty much his methodology. So it's a lovely connection to think that the solutions in this country are not much different to the solutions for a poor sub-Saharan African country. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, very much connected. I just want to say thank you for joining me. Um, Really enjoyed talking. Thank you for being interested in Tieni. And, you know, whatever you can do to make this world a little better. Um, Alone, we're a drop in the ocean, but together, we're an ocean. That's it. Absolutely. I love that. Very much so. And if people wanted to learn more about Tieni, um, is is it the website that's where we should send them to? That's the starting point, and and in fact, it's what we do. And in there is not only a, a six minute um, uh, animation, but there's also the steps in creating a deep bed garden. We have got to update it because the sociology we haven't put the sociology in there, and we're just working on that now. We hadn't realised that without the sociology, the other two don't count really. If we don't get that right. it's not going to work yeah there's always people at the heart of it always people at the heart well fantastic i hope you have a fantastic day as well Uh, enjoy your afternoon
Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for taking an interest. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we'll be joined by Kelly Earhart, co-founder of Project Vesta. This is a nature-based carbon capture solution with a difference. They're exploring a way to rapidly accelerate and scale up the permanent carbon storage that results from mineral weathering. The process the planet uses to store carbon over hundreds of millions of years is being brought down to mere decades. That's a lot of potential, and we discuss the ambitions, challenges and implications of this project. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth and let's keep figuring this all out together.